Section 9 of Stratagems and Conspiracies to Defraud Life Insurance Companies. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Anna Goss. Stratagems and Conspiracies to Defraud Life Insurance Companies, an authentic record of remarkable cases by John B. Lewis, and Charles C. Baumbach. Speculative Life Insurance, Part 4. The Belfast Scandal. In the early part of the year 1888, the London office of the Equitable Life Assurance Society of the United States received intimations of crookedness in the conduct of the agency in Belfast, which called for prompt interference and stern correction. Thereupon, the then-secretary, now manager of the London branch, Mr. Alexander Monkittrick, proceeded to Belfast, and with the aid of personal friends and acquaintances, succeeded in unmasking a plot to defraud the equitable out of many thousand pounds. The conspirators were Chestnut Smythe, the general agent, James Spears Orr, a sub-agent, Dr. James Kamek Smythe, medical examiner and brother of Chestnut, Robert Dunlop, Hugh Knox Matthews, and William Press respectable citizens of Belfast. Their plan of procedure was modeled on the Pennsylvania graveyard system, with all of its recklessness, and as little pretense of insurable interest. To that system they tacked improvements of their own, which were correspondingly dangerous to society. They were men of excellent standing in social and business life, in religious association and club connection. They were altogether beyond suspicion of the practice of insuring other people without their knowledge or consent. They were well equipped for a successful campaign of villainy, and they had a large and liberal company on the other side of the Atlantic to deal with, instead of depending on the fluctuations of the hat-passing style of collection. Their plans were so well contrived that if a cat's paw known as Black Joe, a negro who had been insured as an Irishman, had not shuffled off his coil prematurely and paved the way to detection, they would eventually have swindled the equitable out of a large amount, the policies representing which were recovered. Recovery was easy, because the policies were void. They had been obtained through forged signatures to the proposals and forged medical certificates. Several respectable citizens had been insured in this way without their knowledge, and the policies were assigned by the conspirators to themselves as beneficiaries. In other cases, selected from the worthless classes, consent was obtained, and assignment made for a trifling consideration. Arrest followed in the first week of May, with a lengthy preliminary hearing in the recorder's court before Colonel the Honorable W. F. Forbes, R.M. There was a great deal of discreditable sparring between the counsel for the prosecution and the counsel for the accused. Of the latter, the counsel for Dunlop, Mr. O'Shaughnessy, was conspicuously vicious and vulgar in his abuse of the equitable and its management. How much of an impression was made on Colonel Forbes by this unwarrantable form of digression was seen when he expressed his readiness to remand the prisoners for trial. The bail for Dunlop, the wealthy grocer and town councillor, was fixed at £12,000, while in the other cases it was comparatively light, and Dr. Smythe was allowed to go on his own recognizance. To ensure fairness and freedom from local partiality and prejudice, the trial was transferred to the Wicklow Aziz's, and fixed for the closing days of July. The six prisoners, to quote the language of the indictment of the grand jury, 
did wickedly, designedly, and feloniously combine, conspire, confederate, and agree together, by diverse false pretenses and subtle means and devices, to obtain and acquire to themselves from the Equitable Life Assurance Society of the United States large sums of money against the peace and dignity of Our Lady the Queen. The prosecution of these scoundrels, originally in the hands of the Council for the Equitable, had been assumed exclusively by the Council for the Crown, and the Attorney General was ready to proceed with the case with a large array of witnesses, who had been brought from distant points at considerable expense and great inconvenience. Those who were familiar with the testimony to be offered confidently expected speedy conviction and commensurate punishment. To the surprise of all, the trial collapsed through discovery of an informality. The counsel for the Traversers challenged the array of special jurors under the Crimes Act on the ground that the panel had not been properly summoned in rotation of the names on the jury book as provided by the Act. It appeared that the sheriff, in preparing the panel, had summoned 48 special jurors for the trial of civil cases only, and had also summoned a panel of 200 jurors under the Criminal Law Amendment Act for the trial of the prisoners. After a day's skirmishing between opposing counsel, Justice O'Brien expressed the opinion that the panel had been irregularly and illegally summoned, and upon the request of the Attorney General he made an order quashing the panel, directing the sheriff to return a new panel pursuant to the statute and adjourning the court to August 16th. Thereupon, a special juror made a strong appeal to the justice against the date selected, on the ground that it would be the middle of the harvest season, and enforced absence would cause very great loss. His lordship sympathetically assented, and the date of adjournment was eventually fixed for the 15th of October. It was a matter for profound regret that after the machinery of the law had been set in motion with such care and precision, it was abruptly stopped by one of those quiddities which, however sufficient and satisfying to the legal mind, provoke impatience on the part of those who cannot reconcile the uncouth forms and the antiquated adjuncts which cling like mold to modern jurisprudence, with verities which are obvious, and with even-handed justice whose demands are unquestionable. In view of the extent of the disclosures of the Belfast crimes, and of the urgent need of making in a short, sharp, and a decisive way a memorable example of such transgression, the sacrifice of substance to shadow was all the more vexatious and disappointing when contrasted with the usual promptitude in disposing of British criminal cases. The trial of the conspirators at the Wicklow Aziz's, before Justice O'Brien, commenced on the 20th of October, 1888, and terminated on the 27th. The justice, who appears to have been of a humorous turn, of which he gave several indications during the proceedings, remarked, while Mr. Monketrick was under cross-examination, We have had a very large experience of American insurance in this country, and they have had a very large experience of us. In this little off-hand pleasantry, there was probably more length and breadth than his lordship was aware of. Shakespeare was right when he said, More water glideth by the mill than wots the miller of. The first two conspirators placed on trial were Robert Dunlop and James Spears Orr. They were indicted on the charge of feloniously altering a certificate of the death of Joseph M. Wilson, otherwise known as Black Joe, by inserting a false entry representing the duration of Wilson's illness as one month instead of two months. This colored tramp was insured as an Irishman for £2,000, annual premium, £96, 16 shillings, 8 pence for Dunlop's benefit, without insurable interest, 
November 2, 1887. Dr. Smythe, brother of Chestnut Smythe, and one of the conspirators, pronounced a mere wreck a first-class life. Wilson died December 20th of heart disease and dropsy, a complication of maladies of long standing. Fearing exposure through such a suspiciously sudden death, the conspirators changed the certificate accompanying the proofs of death so as to bring the period of illness within the period of insurance. Or, who was the instrument of Dunlop in the execution of his rascally designs, was the ready and capable forger. Dunlop's solicitor, Mr. Walker, tried to make it appear that he was the dupe and tool of ore who was engaged in fraudulent transactions against the company of which he was an agent in the morning and in lecturing on temperance in the evening. It was easily shown, however, that the impecunious ore, who had a large family, was in debt to the rich grocer, and to that extent in his power, and obliged to serve him, and to facilitate his schemes for further enrichment. If he deceived Dunlop at all, it was in the single statement that insurable interest is not required by American law. Sergeant Hemphill, for the Crown, said, The action of both prisoners in the case went to prove their moral depravity, for they both joined in the same crime, and now each one sought to throw the whole responsibility of the violation of the law on the other. He believed it would require golden scales to weigh the comparative degree of depravity and immorality between the two prisoners. Orr made a full confession of his guilty transactions through his solicitor, Mr. Young. He pleaded guilty to a charge of misdemeanor only, and not to the more serious charge of felony. Referring to these admissions at the close of a lengthy charge to the jury, Mr. Justice O'Brien said, first addressing himself to Orr, and afterward to Dunlop, It is undoubtedly a very great offense against the law, and not merely an offense against the law, but an offense committed by you in pursuance of and in aid of a vast conspiracy of fraud, and it is further a violation of the duty that you owed to your employers, as well as a duty you owed to the law of the country. I still recognize in your station and in your position as an humble man that you were to some extent dependent for pecuniary aid upon Robert Dunlop, and I recognize some ground of distinction between the cases of each of you. And you, Robert Dunlop, if you were cast down from a high station, from the reputation of an honest man of great wealth, I am told even colossal wealth, it was by your own act in violating the law. There was no other conclusion for the jury to come to than that you were guilty, and you were in the higher station and of greater wealth, and I believe you to be the more guilty. Your sentence is nine months' imprisonment with hard labor, and you, Spears Orr, are sentenced to six months' imprisonment with hard labor. The extreme lightness of these sentences was in broad contrast with the measure of expectation. Those who were more or less familiar with the testimony to be given, and the confessions to be made, expected a term of at least fifteen years' imprisonment as the appropriate penalty. The judge himself, in speaking of the uttering of the false statement in the certificate, in the course of his extended review of the evidence before the jury, said, It is hardly necessary to state to you that the person who does any criminal or other act by the hand of another does it himself, and it makes no kind of difference in the legal contemplation whether the person who altered the certificate was Orr or Dunlop, if Dunlop was a party to it. The offense charged is one of great gravity, for though you might consider that the alteration of a document might be trifling, still you must have regard to the circumstance that the legislature, in enacting the law, determined that under certain circumstances, the person convicted of a violation might be sentenced to penal servitude for life. 
In an editorial comment upon the sentence, a leading insurance journal of England, the Review, said, When the tones of his lordship's voice died away, a look of astonishment, bordering on incredulity, crept into every face, and none appeared more surprised than the jury themselves. The lightness of the sentences became the subject of general remark. Certainly, they were altogether different from what was expected. It is difficult to say what view Mr. Justice O'Brien took of the affair. Probably, he thought, for men occupying the positions which the prisoners held, nine months and six months respectively of picking oakum, the plank bed, and all the other accessories of hard labor in a county jail, besides the disgrace of the thing, he was making the punishment fit the crime in every respect. Be that as it may, public opinion is altogether at variance with his lordship's decision. The Dublin Daily Express, which echoed the general feeling, said, We believe that the public, who have read the accounts of the frauds, and reflected upon the circumstances and the position of the prisoners, will be disposed to think that justice has been very inadequately vindicated by sentences which fall so far short of what the law affords for such criminality. Other Irish and English journals showed a consensus of opinion as to an inadequacy of punishment totally irreconcilable with the facts and the demands of justice. An effort was made by Dunlop's counsel, Mr. O'Shaughnessy, to entrap a witness into severe reflection upon the management of the equitable life, and to convert into the appearance of settled conviction a hastily formed conclusion as to the home management, which was corrected upon proper representation of the facts. The judge promptly and vigorously rebuked the offender. Said he, I cannot allow the company to be attacked. The prosecution is being conducted by the Attorney General for the Crown, and not for the insurance company. It was not the equitable that was on trial, it was its assailants, its worst enemies, a gang of thieves who, if they had been undetected in their audacious rascality, would have plundered its treasury of a large amount of money. On the 24th, the case of Hugh Knox Matthews and William Press, in which Chestnut Smythe was implicated, was called up. At the time first set for the trial, nearly three months before, it was known to a few persons that Smythe was ready to turn informer, and, to save his own neck, reveal the story of the drama in which he enacted the part of the big villain. On the present occasion, it was generally understood that he would be accepted as Queen's evidence. After a lengthy and detailed recital of the tricks and devices to which he and the gang combined with him resorted in order, as the indictment said, to obtain from the Equitable Life Assurance Society of the United States large sums of money, the property of said society, the following colloquy occurred on cross-examination. Q. Were you secretary of a religious association? A. I was connected with various religious associations. Q. And I suppose you are trained in these societies in religion, virtue, and morality. A. I suppose so. Q. Were you secretary of a religious society? A. Now don't be smiling. There is nothing to smile about. I was secretary of the Congregational Association, etc. The informer is always an object of distrust and disgust, and Smythe's case was no exception. Matthews and Press were condemned to nine months' imprisonment with hard labor. While they, with Dunlop, Orr, and Dr. Smythe, were breaking stone in the prison yard at Belfast, Chestnut Smythe, the biggest rascal of the gang, secured his liberty by turning Queen's evidence and escaping to America. People in general, and the press in particular, look at passing events through lenses of differing refractive power. 
Here is the Dublin Freeman's Journal, for instance, which looked through political spectacles at Smythe's irregularities. It said, The next sensational pamphlet may well be one bearing the title Unionists and Crime. Mr. Chestnut Smythe, the gentleman from Belfast who confessed on Tuesday in the witness box at Wicklow as an informer against his confederates, that he had committed forgery upon forgery, that he had reduced forgery to a system, that he had forged Mr. Finley McCants's name and Mr. Matthew's name, and that in fact he did not know how many forgeries he had been guilty of, and all for the purposes of fraud, was the appointed secretary of the Liberal Unionist Association, under whose auspices the Marquis of Hartington, Mr. Chamberlain, and other lights of the Unionist Party have been invited, received, entertained, and feted in loyal Belfast. In fact, Mr. Chestnut Smythe was the Liberal Unionist's right-hand man. On the other hand, the Belfast Evening Telegraph dealt with the wretched business from the viewpoint of the moralist. Remembering Chestnut Smythe's prominence in the work of the Young Men's Christian Association, and his high standing in the church and the Sunday school, it thus pronounced judgment. The disclosures he made, as far as he himself is concerned, and we deal only with those, are sorrowful in the extreme. He confessed to wholesale forgery. He had been a Christian professor. His evidence merely shows how mere profession is to be distrusted, and how solid worth should be sought rather than the mere tinsel of hypocrisy. We speak of this unfortunate gentleman more in sorrow than in anger. He was beset by many temptations. Suddenly thrown from a sphere in which he had the protection of Christian friends into the maelstrom of the world, of whose treacherous waters he knew nothing, he fell an easy prey. His confessions are as painful as they could well nigh be, and it is to be hoped that he is an exception to those who have received so excellent a training and yet are failing in the moral sense which judges between right and wrong. Among the citizens of Belfast who were insured by the rascals on a forged proposal and forged medical certificate, without consent or knowledge, was Mr. Finley McCants, manager of the Ulster Spinning Company. Mr. McCants was one of the numerous witnesses on the stand, and he testified that he knew Matthews slightly, but did not know press, that neither had any insurable interest in his life, and that he had no knowledge of a policy for £5,000 taken out on his life until these proceedings commenced. When his testimony closed, he turned to the justice and said, I would like to learn from your lordship on what ground Mr. Henderson holds on to a policy on my life, which was obtained by fraud, and which gives him an interest in my death. This gave his honor an opportunity for one of his jocosities. He replied, Mr. McCants, when you have joined the majority, which I hope will not be for a distant time from the present, I will then be in position to answer your question, and you will then be able to understand all about it. The judge's charge to the jury in the case of Matthews and Press was lengthy, about three hours, but, as Horace Greeley would have said, it is mighty interesting reading. It was enlivened by flashes of characteristic jocularity. For instance, in speaking of the great activity in the life insurance work, he said, the flush of the insurance business in the year 1887 in the town of Belfast almost bore some analogy to the spreading of Scarlatina. And a little further on, he said, these transatlantic, American, companies appeared to regard Ireland as a kind of Golconda mine, and they seemed sometimes to go out to gather wool and come back shorn. In reviewing the cases selected by the gamblers for speedy realization on their investment, such as that of Colson, suffering from attacks of delirium tremens as the result of excessive drinking, together with ulcerated legs, or that of Jackson, 
with threatening consumption and other maladies, the judge vigorously denounced the offense with which the prisoners were charged. He characterized the act on the part of one or more individuals of presenting a bad life to an insurance company as flagrantly dishonest and criminal. He had his own opinion, and doubtless the jury had theirs, as to the conduct and the moral condition of the men who could coolly watch a life on which they were speculating, rapidly descending by vice, like Colson, into a dishonorable grave. On this last point, Sergeant Hemphill, counsel for the Crown, had said in his address to the jury, A great deal has been said about insurable interest. What did the jury suppose Matthews or Press embarked in this traffic in insurance for? Why did they not stick to their ordinary legitimate business pursuits? Could they believe that these men were so innocent as not to know they had no right to gamble in human life? An act of Parliament was passed over a hundred years ago in England to put a stop to the terrible results ensuing from this form of gambling, and the law was subsequently extended to this country, Ireland. It was a horrible reflection, no matter in what light the transactions in Belfast appeared. It was a horrible idea to be sitting at the same table with a man on whose life they had an insurance in their pockets, watching with interest every bit he ate and every sup he drank, to see how far it might shorten the term of his existence. The last case to be disposed of was that of the medical examiner Dr. James Kamek Smythe. The evidence of his active participation in the conspiracy was brief but conclusive. In the course of a comprehensive summary, Justice O'Brien, turning to the prisoner, used the following forcible language. If you had not been guilty of this offense, no other person could have been found guilty. The crime could not have been committed without your concurrence. You were placed in a position of great trust by the insurance company. You were expected to perform your duty, to represent truth and right. You betrayed your trust, and you are morally responsible for the fact that four persons are now imprisoned under the degradation and punishment of a sentence, which, if you had done your duty, would have been averted. Dr. Smythe was sentenced to six months' imprisonment, a small matter in itself compared with his professional and social ruin. The following extract from the Dublin Daily Express will serve as a specimen of the newspaper comments of the time, October 1888. After a trial which occupied the court for four days, the prisoners, Matthews and Press, who were indicted for conspiracy to defraud the Equitable Insurance Company, were found guilty and sentenced to penal servitude, it may be thought, or at least two years' imprisonment. No, but to nine months' imprisonment with hard labor. We venture to say that the punishment will excite as much astonishment from its lightness as did the frauds themselves by their enormity. Many and inscrutable are the mysteries of the law, but its proverbial uncertainty is surpassed in this sentence. The frauds which have been revealed in this case were not absolutely novel in their main features, but their magnitude and turpitude were greater than any which have been brought to light within living memory in Ireland, and, having regard to the position of the swindlers who were engaged in them, and the circumstances under which they were committed, we think it would be hard to find a parallel for them. It was not the case of a set of desperate adventurers who had to live by their wits, and were under the pressure of want without any regular employment or means of earning an honest living. The prisoners who were convicted on Saturday occupied respectable positions as traders in Belfast, and one of them is possessed of considerable property. Smythe and Orr, as well as Matthews and Press, set to work to obtain every bad life which could be found in the city in order to insure them. A wretched oysterman was insured for 2,000 pounds. 
A clerk of the markets, who was dismissed for intemperate habits and neglect of duty, was insured for £5,000, and Matthews hoped to bring the insurance up to £20,000. A respectable merchant of the city happened to take ill and had to go abroad. This was a chance for the swindlers, and accordingly an application and medical certificate were forged and a policy for £5,000 obtained in his name. But when he returned in good health, the enterprising Matthews broke off the bargain. It would not do to insure such a life, and the policy was transferred to another. Some of the insured persons died in a short time, but the frauds having been discovered, no claim was made by the holders of the policies, and, on the contrary, policies to the amount of £16,000, on which over £500 had been paid as premiums, were surrendered without any compensation. So widely ramified and heinous a system of fraud has not been discovered for many years, the public were shocked at the revelations and expected that after an imposing trial at the special Aziz's, which seemed to indicate that the Crown attached great importance to the vindication of the law in such a case, such a punishment would be inflicted upon them as would deter others from committing a similar crime. But oh, most lame and impotent conclusion. A sentence of nine months' imprisonment will, it is to be feared, rather encourage other adventurers to speculate in the same way. The tendency to make political capital out of such a miscarriage of justice was nowhere more notable than in that home rule journal, the Dublin Star, the paper of a very lively member of Parliament, Mr. T. P. O'Connor. In connection with the case, the following breezy editorial is worth preserving. It sometimes seems a pity that there is no method of overhauling the conduct of judges. Enthroned in a position almost of omnipotence, these gentlemen are able often to overthrow the law they were intended to administer, and, as in the recent outburst of Mr. Justice Grantham, to violate all the decencies of life and all the conventions of fair play. The House of Commons remains as the great court of appeal for all the nation, though whenever an inconvenient inquiry is raised, the minister is always ready to get up and declare the incompetence of the House to discuss the decisions of the courts. Nevertheless, we sincerely hope that attention will be called to the scandalous conduct of Mr. Justice O'Brien in reference to what are known as the great insurance frauds. This whole story is one of the most startling in all criminal history. A number of men in Belfast conspired to rob the Equitable Life Assurance Society of New York. The plan was to hunt up some poor devil who was drinking himself quickly to death, or who was already in the last stage of disease, to forge an application without his knowledge for an insurance, then to forge the certificate of the doctor, and, when the tippler or the consumptive came to his early end, to pocket the policy. The conspiracy was gigantic and widespread in its operations. Not satisfied with Belfast, it went through the whole county of Antrim, until the policies taken out reached the enormous figure of £40,000. At last, through some accident, a clue was given, it was followed up, and this tremendous network of fraud was unraveled. The discovery of the kind of persons involved was as astounding as the gigantic nature of the operation, for at the head and front of this vile plot were men of great wealth, of conspicuous piety, and, without exception, they were pillars of the Loyalist Party. Mr. Chestnut Smythe, who was the leading figure in the conspiracy, was secretary of the reception committee that welcomed Mr. Chamberlain, and doubtless was in the mind of that renegade when he was pointing to the contrast between the poverty and dishonesty of the Southern Nationalist and the sturdy honesty and stable prosperity of the northern loyalist. The name of Mr. James Henderson, the proprietor of the Belfast Newsletter, the chief organ in Ulster of the Orange Party, 
has been mentioned in a way and with a frequency that suggests that either he ought to be in the dock or somebody else ought to be the defendant in an action for libel. Mr. Dunlop, another of the foremost conspirators, is reported to be a man worth £80,000, and several others of the swindlers are also men of large means. The guilt was brought clearly home, for Mr. Chestnut Smythe, the companion and patron of Mr. Chamberlain, was admitted as informer and revealed the whole story. And now comes the most scandalous feature of the whole business. If there were ever a pack of ruffians that deserved to be sent to a prolonged period of penal servitude, they were the men engaged in this conspiracy. They had not the temptation of poverty. They acted from pure, unadulterated, wicked greediness. Some years ago, a few Americans, men of desperate fortunes and clement needs, entered into a conspiracy to rob the Bank of England. They were all sentenced to penal servitude either for 20 years or for life, and only one, so far as we know, has ever been released, and he was a broken man. If these men, being Irishmen, had also been nationalists, they would have fared as ill. The same judge who tried them sent a few years ago an unfortunate young bank clerk who stole under the influence of bad, dissolute companions to seven years' penal servitude. What think you was the sentence of Dunlop, the scoundrel with eighty thousand pounds, who grasped at more and robbed and forged to obtain it? Just nine months. One of the other conspirators got off with six months, and Mr. Chestnut Smythe, the friend of Mr. Chamberlain, having played the Judas part one would expect from his alliances, escaped scot-free. This scandalous result has proved too much even for the Daily Express, whose friends and supporters were implicated. The frauds, it rightly declares, of a magnitude and a turpitude greater than any which has been brought to light within living memory in Ireland. And it adds that, a sentence of nine months' imprisonment will, it is to be feared, rather encourage other adventurers to speculate in the same way. To make this part of the story complete, we should add that Mr. Justice O'Brien, whom all the journalism of Ireland, with the exception of the Belfast newsletter, Mr. Henderson's paper, have united in denouncing, is an intimate friend of Mr. Wilson, the chief calumniator of the Times, and is credited in Ireland with some share in the production of the articles which, being under judicial investigation, we cannot now adequately describe. Two or three things finally must be said as to this case. We have no desire whatever to make all Belfast responsible for the villainies which have at last been exposed, although the judge did make the significant remark that all Belfast seemed to be more or less concerned in the fraud. But it is permissible to observe that if a wholesale fraud had been exposed in which nationalists were the guilty parties, as extensive as that which has just been revealed in Belfast, it would have been utilized on every Unionist platform in England as a final and convincing argument against home rule. In the absence of any such bonne bouche, the loyal inhabitants of Belfast are still represented as too loyal, too honest, too virtuous, too law-abiding to be put under the foot of a dishonest, immoral, disloyal, parnalite parliament in Dublin. Have we not, in the face of such disclosures, heard enough of those eulogies of the north of Ireland at the expense of the rest of the country? And, finally, one of the great arguments on which the Unionists support coercion is the impossibility of getting verdicts even when the guilt of the accused is palpable. We defy any Unionist to point to a single case in which a nationalist jury has refused to convict a swindler such as any one of those concerned in the great equitable fraud. But so much were the Crown afraid of the loyal, and the law-abiding, and the moral, and the honest, and the virtuous, and the Unionist jurors of Belfast, 
that they transferred this case to the Wicklow Aziz's, Aziz's held in another county and in another province. The less we hear of the loyalist Belfast in the future, the better. End of section 9. Read by Anna Goss.